Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career user, providing career and leadership coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Dai Vu, who is a tech industry veteran. Dai has worked for Google in a variety of roles for almost 10 years and previously spent time at IBM, Microsoft, and SAP. He's also an advisory board member for Capital G, the independent growth fund of Google's parent company, Alphabet, and his experience base spans general management, product management, go-to-market areas, strategy, business development. He has a proven track record of bringing disruptive solutions to market and building new businesses. Earlier in his career, Dai worked in management consulting, spending time at McKinsey, where he and I met, and then later at Boston Consulting Group. He has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from RPI, a master's degree in computer science from UPenn, and an MBA from UPenn's Wharton School. He lives in the Bay Area. Hi, welcome. Thanks for being on the show with me. Thanks, JR. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. So... Talk about your current role at Google. Yeah. So my current role, I am part of Google Cloud, which as you may know, is a very sizable business now with a 34 billion annualized revenue run rate. And so I'm part of the go-to-market and business organization. So I run an area of the business called Google Cloud Marketplace. And think of that as a modern distribution channel for our software and solution partners. So think of companies like Palo Alto Networks, Databricks, MongoDB, Confluent, Mm -hmm. Commerce Tools, et cetera, many, many Mm -hmm. others. And what we want to do with Marketplace is really become the primary online distribution channel and really providing a catalog, a universal catalog for our end customers to discover, try, buy, deploy, use solutions that really run on or with Google Cloud. And what's really exciting, JR, is that we're really transforming how software is being bought and sold by modernizing the end-to-end procurement process. So think of, again, online discovery, simplified purchasing, a very efficient deployment of these third-party solutions that run on Google Cloud. And the catalog solutions, they include uh, SaaS, so software as a service, APIs, databases, Kubernetes apps, uh, virtual machines, infrastructure solutions like security, commercial data sets, developer tools, uh, operating systems, business and vertical apps, and, and much, much more. So my team's primary charter is really just to grow the ecosystem business, the marketplace. So I manage teams that are responsible for partner and platform strategy, business development, category management, P&L management, go-to-market programs, onboarding and enablement with partners, various partner co-sell initiatives. So our field sellers and the partners co-sell together and, uh, and partner engineering. 
I've been in this role for about over two years. And previously within Google Cloud, I spent four years in the uh, cloud product group, an area of the business called application modernization platform. So this is around scaling our modern apps and development platform, including bootstrapping some of the things we're doing with multi-cloud. Yeah, that's my role. So essentially, just to make sure I understand it and for the benefit of our audience too, you've got this ecosystem of software providers that are running on Google Cloud. How much do you do to facilitate integration among them? Yeah, so we do. So we, as I mentioned, I have a partner engineering and a partner onboarding team, and we have different models where we basically work with the partners to basically integrate into our platform. So this includes things like billing integration. So for example, an end customer that chooses to procure a software provider through uh, Google Cloud Marketplace will basically have an integrated bill so think of it as an additional line item on their Google Cloud bill. There's other mm-hmm. things that we do to just improve the overall experience. Like one of the concepts we have is first party equals third party. So if you're an end customer who wants to purchase a database, we want to make sure that your end-to-end experience in terms of like search, try, discover, deploy is indistinguishable, whether it's our first party service, like our own sort of managed database service, or if it's mm-hmm. a third party solution partner. Yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's it's kind of taking you know the consumer app store construct a bit further in. It applies to enterprise software in your case, but also gives kind of a wrapper and an umbrella that you're providing around other software providers to make the whole experience kind of hang together better. A lot of the things that you were mentioning earlier. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the App Store because I think it's easy to draw sort of parallels between two. You're right. There is a a very similar concept, but in in many ways, it's different when you think about the business model. So, you know, the way we make money on cloud marketplaces, you know, there's certainly a, a rev share. So we take a cut of the gross transaction value. So the dollars that get transacted on marketplace, but uh, to be clear, it's nowhere near the rev share that you might see on say like an Apple, uh, Apple store. But really what it comes down to is because these solutions run on Google Cloud, you can think of it as a way for us to drive stickiness and consumption in terms of our services, whether it's like database or compute or storage or higher layer services like data and AI. That really allows partners to benefit because they're leveraging a lot of the capabilities and services we have on Google Cloud. But from an end customer's perspective, the fact that you have a thriving ecosystem runs on Google Cloud enables them to sort of embrace Google Cloud in general as well. For a company that's buying cloud services and cloud-based platforms, I mean, essentially, you can go multi-cloud, but it's expensive. So I know you've got a couple of three very big competitors out there. Ultimately, you know what you're trying to do is to make your cloud solution more advantageous overall with its sort of more comprehensive user experience, if you will, for the people who are deploying software into your cloud, the developers, as well as the consumers of those platforms, just to make it work more seamlessly for everybody. I, that's, I guess, what I'm taking away from what you're saying. Absolutely. And in fact, if you kind of think about it as, you know, in a traditional sort of like IT stack, you know, a lot of the things that are kind of core infrastructure, whether it be compute or storage, you know, a lot of times those are very difficult to differentiate. And so the more that you can create sort of stickiness with either uh, higher layer services like data and AI, but also the apps that make available on our cloud, that's how you create that sort of uh, stickiness with within customers. Yeah, absolutely. How do you, I mean, RevShare is part of what you're doing, consumption of cloud services. How do you otherwise measure the success of what you're trying to do as a company in the cloud 
think there are a couple of things. Number one is I think you have to take a step back and say that Google Cloud in general is a growth engine for Google. So, you know, you look at our historically our digital advertising business is a pretty massive scale. It represents a very high percentage of our top line revenue. But understandably for a business of that size, it has the growth has slowed. So it's kind of like in the low teens, if you will. Cloud, as I mentioned before, is now a $34 billion annualized run rate. And in our most recent earnings, uh, two days ago, we grew at 22% year over year. But then the quarter before that, it was 28%. So certainly driving growth for Alphabet and Google overall is a primary measure that we have. The second thing I would say is obviously profitability. So for several years, I've been in cloud for you know close to six years. Yeah. We now have our third consecutive quarter of profitability. So it took us a little bit of while. So, you know, with mm. with the capital investments in terms of building the regions and the data center, you can imagine, and with people, it took a little bit of time to reach profitability. Now that we've established it, we, we continue to sort of build on top of that. The third area I touched on earlier, which is, you know, value-added services. So I think another way we sort of measure the effectiveness of cloud is to what extent can we have customers adopt services that are more at the higher layers, right? So, you know, think of in the old days, the atomic unit of consumption, if you will, of cloud would be very resource-based, meaning it's a core compute hour right. or it's a terabyte per month or something along those lines. And I think we want to sort of shift that conversation to you know, services, microservices, applications, AI models, data, uh, warehousing, and to the extent that we're successful in terms of driving that conversation and shift it to more around automated services, applications, I think that that establishes us uh, as a well uh, among the, the cloud providers, in addition to sort of just basic business results like revenue. And then other customer measures that we pay quite attention to is around NPS, Net Promoter Score, and mm -hmm. CSAT, we measure on a regular basis. And then the last thing is maybe I'll just mention specifically of cloud marketplace because that's uh, that's my area. You know, the things that I measure on is what is the gross transaction value because we want more revenue flowing through our marketplaces because we think we have a very strong value proposition for both the partners and the end customers. And in fact, if you look at H1 of this year, we grew at 140% year over year in terms of the gross transaction value. So that's obviously much larger than the overall Google Cloud growth overall. We have other metrics like if you look at our co-sell bookings, like when we have our frontline sellers selling with our solution part sellers, what is those bookings growth? And in, in each one of this year, that grew about 200% year over year. So that's you know certainly success we've had on the, on the partner side. And on the end customer side, another interesting metric that we measure is just the number of customers are spending more than a million dollars on marketplace. And that has increased by 6x. So you're seeing great acceleration, not only with the depth of adoption, but the share of this, uh, what I call like the cloud committed spend. So how much they put and committed to spend on Google Cloud, a higher percentage of that across our customers. Mm -hmm. And we have data that reinforces that once customers start to use cloud marketplaces, they expand their usage considerably. And then maybe the last area that I measure is just around selection and scale, because, you know, like as you mentioned, we're kind of a, a storefront. And so we want to stock the shelves with, you know, high quality uh, solution listings. And last year we've added hundreds of new partners and new uh, solution listings. And, you know, that improves the selection and scale. And if you look at over the last four years, 
the number of partners with paid listings uh, on marketplaces increased by 10x over four years. So today we have over a thousand solution partners, 3,000 solution listings. So really creates a very attractive and highly curated runs on Google Cloud, a selection mm-hmm. for our end customers. Just the scale of growth is amazing. I mean, I worked for a company before my current job that was a 200 and something year old company that was, we'll call it roughly $12 billion in revenue. And, yeah. you know, you have a business that really didn't exist a, a decade ago. That's a $34 billion business. The the speed of growth is just mind-blowing in the tech sector. And you guys, you know, are certainly a phenomenal example of how fast a company can grow. Yeah, it has. I mean, it, it certainly makes it very exciting because we're kind of like a startup and, you know, the super fast growth gets everybody sort of energized and charged around what they're driving and, and, and seeing the business results is, is very important. But it also potentially has its challenges too, because in some ways, a lot of the processes and in supporting infrastructure may not be fully in place for a company at this scale, right? And yeah. And then if you look at marketplace specifically, as I mentioned, because, uh, you know, it's exacerbated because our growth is even four to five X the growth of overall cloud, you know, it's effectively we're like a mainstream business, but sometimes we're not fully supported like a mainstream business. So this certainly creates, you know, some operational and scaling challenges with my team, but you know, at least for now they've embraced it. You have to be willing to sort of live with that kind of ambiguity and all of that when you're growing as fast as you are and are simultaneously as big as you are. So it, it takes a special kind of person to work and succeed in those environments, I would imagine. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You were in Google's ad business before moving into the cloud. What were you doing during that part of your time with Google? So I was actually a product management leader for a portfolio of products and solutions that it covered a broad area. So let me kind of give the broad area and maybe give a couple of examples. So it really, it was in the core ads. It was enabling service delivery, product operation, sales operation, activity management, workflow management, business intelligence, data ingestion, customer experience. So I had a team of about 15 product managers, and I worked closely with about 200 uh, software engineers to build this portfolio of products. But let me give you a couple of examples of the products I managed. So one was a product that was basically the core data transfer engine. So if you think of the feeds, uh, the data from third-party ecosystem that feeds into Google that we ingest to sort of drive specific ads. Think of it as shopping, as an example, which is all the product skew uh, image information that gets ingested on a daily basis. We had a product platform that basically supported those feeds across uh, 300 different product teams. Another example of a product that I had was Partner Portal. So think of it as an external framework that enabled our ecosystem partners to engage across different product areas like Google news, podcast, Google Play, hotel pricing ads, retail build, uh, hardware portal. So even though it was in the core ads business, you can see a little bit of a common theme where I managed a lot more on both the ecosystem side, but also kind of supporting infrastructure, if you will, to sort of generate and support those businesses with those partners. You were at SAP before that. What was it that drew you over to Google? So I had a great time at SAP. So I sat, you know, I was there for two years. I sat in a corporate business development and strategic partnership. It actually sat in the office of the CEO. So Bill McDermott, who is now the CEO of ServiceNow, was the CEO at SAP at the time. 
And what my team worked on was uh, SAP was actually in the middle of a pretty massive transformation. So they were trying to move from a, you know, more of a legacy apps company that kind of charges maintenance fees to like a a very large install base. And they were trying to shift to cloud. They're trying to be a platform company, very different business model. How do they work with partners? So it was a pretty massive change in terms of uh, culture, the rate of innovation, how they sell. So it was a great experience. But when Google reached out to me, you know, I was certainly drawn to them because, you know, Google at the time, and I think still is one of you know the most desirable places to work. I was an extensive user of their consumer products like Maps and Earth and Gmail and Calendar and Docs. And, right. you know, I always had this perception that they were very focused on the user. They were very focused on products and innovation. You know, use some of these terms like focus on the user, all else will mm. follow. They recruit top talent, very smart and motivated people. So the opportunity to kind of work in that environment where you can push yourselves and be inspired by the folks that you work with. I think there was this perception that Google is doing some very interesting things to change the world, right? I mean, how can you not like their core mission statement around, yeah. you know, organizing the world's information and making universally accessible. So certainly once Google reached out, you know, I certainly had to listen and, you know, the specific roles you have to find, but that's what discussions, one discussion led to another. And, and here I am nine to 10 years later. And as you say, it's, this is the longest you've worked any place so far in your career, right? I mean, to be clear, I've had three different roles and I've been here, you know, nine years. And if I look at those other stops, I spent five years at Microsoft, three years at IBM, three years at McKinsey, uh, where we worked together, Mm -hmm. uh, two years at SAP, two years at BCG. And I haven't found a need to look outside because I've had an opportunity to sort of like do different roles, continue to learn, develop amazing people, and had the opportunity to have you know, roles where I'm continue to build things, you know, build new businesses and scale new businesses, which is my passion. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, people are moving companies more often, certainly than they did a generation ago, but some people move more frequently than others. Others are very happy staying where they are. And sometimes, you know, you may be somebody who tends to pursue opportunities and then you just find a place that just feels like it really works for you and you end up staying there longer. And so, you know, I think it's, it's all good. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of the way that everything has evolved, you know, relative, as I said, to a a generation ago. My longest stint will probably be 11 years, which I had in two different places in my current job for two years. We have a decent number of people who worked for our firm for 25, 30 years. And I I look at them with admiration and think like, that will never be me. Just different strokes for different folks. Let's talk a little bit about you and leadership. So you're a leader in a strategically important business for Google, and you obviously had important roles elsewhere. How would you describe your leadership style? I subscribe to the more situational leadership style because mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty adaptive. So I think it's yeah. dependent on sort of the business context and the readiness of the organization and the teams and, and, and what's sort of like the business objective there. But that being said, I do find myself being put into these kind of build the business and sort of scale the business type roles. So if I had yeah. to you know, say there are specific leadership styles that I tend to gravitate to, certainly one is what I consider more the transformational mm-hmm. agenda which is, you know, how do we encourage team members to look at things and do things different? Uh, Because I do believe in sort of like different stages of growth. And there are some things that worked well to a certain point of inflection where you need to look at doing things differently. I think that's one piece. I tend to be also a very collaborative leader, meaning that I take inputs from my direct team, but also across organizational boundaries. So understanding that taking inputs, even though if I'm kind of ultimately 
the decision maker on things. I need to make sure that I have input from different team members, have the data, you know, consider different viewpoints and making sure that the team feels empowered, that they're part of the decision making process. And just because the way I operate, I also tend to be very fast moving. So really setting a high bar with my team, a high quality outputs, meeting very sort of aggressive on audacious business goals and ensuring that the team sort of drives to that. So I think those are some of the characteristics I drive from a leadership standpoint, but I again, emphasize that I tend to be very adaptive depending on both the business context as well as the team context. Do you feel like your style has changed a lot since your early days as a emerging leader? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we go through these different experiences. We learn definitely. So like, for example, if I had to think like my first leadership role leaving McKinsey, I was at IBM. I tried to manage that team like a McKinsey team. And you can imagine that that didn't go too well, right? And I think in a consulting firm where people tend to be a little bit more homogenous or the behaviors and skills and expectations a little more consistent across team members, that's not the case in, in a typical company. So, you know, I had to learn quite a bit. I think the other thing is, when you start, you feel that you can do everything, right? You can, you know, take on challenge, you could do it all yourself and you have all the answers and you can just do everything. So I think part of the evolution that I've seen over the years is as a leader, your goal is not to have all the answers. So to make sure that you're spending time listening, you're talking, making sure you're gathering input. It's okay to say what you don't know, reach out, ask for help. And then same thing on the uh, execution model, right? Which is the way to get things done is through scaled execution through your teams and also through some cross-functional team members. And so those were probably the initial things that I had to adjust quite a bit in my early years in leadership, which was knowing that you can do more through this model as opposed to take everything on. Yeah. I mean, when you manage a small team, you often have a player coach kind of model and you can pitch in much more directly when needed. I mean, you hit a point where you may be managing a group of 100 or more than 100 where you can't possibly know everything, you can't possibly do every role. And so at that point, it really shifts to how do I help everybody else be successful in what they're trying to get done and make sure that they know what I need, what we as an organization need to get from them. And that's a big shift I think that you have to go through as you get into bigger organizations. Exactly. I'm totally with you. And you know, ultimately going back to our discussion on leadership, it comes down to, hey, you're driving business outcomes, you're driving influence at both an organizational team level to drive the results and, you know, different ways to do different things. But you learn along the way that different techniques work in certain situations. Yeah, definitely. Are there particular topics that you really try to focus your time on as a leader? Yeah, I'll be honest. One of the things that I've been doing a lot lately is uh, around thinking about how we set a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, for I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I find that a lot more than earlier in my career, the demands of knowing like where we're headed as a team, as a company, as an organization, what we need to achieve to is is very important. So I have put a lot of effort in terms of establishing a vision, revising it, sharing it, and getting input from different stakeholders who we interact with. And what I find is, you know, you got to repeat it multiple times. So even when I feel that I have a set of vision yeah. and I've communicated different forms, often you get feedback like, oh, I I want to know where we're headed. So trying different techniques and communication channels to sort of really land that vision. And to be clear, when I say that vision, it's like, it's giving people purpose. It's Mm -hmm. it's 
want to dream big, audacious in terms of where you want to be three to five years from now. But I also find it really helps landing your sort of annual plan. So if you're doing like planning for like the next year around like resources and priorities, having that anchor for that three to four years out, five years out, really makes it very consistent of the things you want to achieve next year because it kind of aligns to what you want to do from a three to five year perspective. That's one area that I focused on uh, Mm -hmm. quite a bit. The other things that I really focus on is, and this is really, I began to focus on this in the last couple of years more so, is around employee well-being and experience. Yeah. Uh, It's not just about achieving results. You know, I think the things with the pandemic and the tech industry in general, we're we're having some challenges with hiring and, and layoffs. And one of the challenges we see is resourcing is a little bit more cautious, but our expectations and business results don't change. So we almost have to do more with less. And so making sure that we, you know, drive to those results, but making sure that we are really focusing on a very healthy team dynamic. There's a sense that we're achieving success together. And when I think about the experiences, some of all the interactions with the employee that has with the organization, whether it's like a new employee onboarding, what are their daily activities, uh, how do they interact with senior leaders? So really looking at that end to end. So that's another area. And then maybe the last area I focus on is is innovation, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, how do we think about differentiation and innovation? Because we have to stay ahead of the competition in the cloud space. We're in this situation where we're unlike the rest of Google, we're, we're not the market leader. We are number three. And the model of, hey, just chasing the leader and just sort of like, doing exactly what they do in a more resource-constrained environment in a very non-differentiated way is not going to win in the marketplace. So really looking at areas where we can really drive innovation, focus on differentiation, take some risks. These are the things that I focus on with the team. What do you look for when you hire people into your organization? A couple of things come to mind. So I think number one is I am the believer that I probably put less emphasis on direct domain experience, because I think the other signals like your core ability to do problem solving, you know, Mm -hmm. so core cognitive ability, your capacity to learn, like willing to take on new challenges and try different things, and your sort of general interest and passion in either the role or the specific areas. I think those things kind of show through more than if you bring, hey, I did this role at AWS or Azure is more important. So I do test that quite a bit. So I see those things. And then the other piece is just culture and fit and just making sure that there's a good dynamic. So often I get to like an offer stage with a candidate. And what I do is I do have some informal discussions that I have with some peers just to make sure that there's just a good sort of rapport and sort of culture and fit with the team. Some of the things you mentioned a minute ago around looking for people who have a desire to learn and a passion for the business. How, how do you test for that when you're in the middle of the hiring process? JR, it's almost like going back to a little bit of our consulting interview technique. So I do give case studies and the case studies are typically, I try two different ways, right? So one is I'll give a case study specifically on something I pick up on the resume, which is like the variation of how would you think about this? And we kind of walk through a case or... I give it in an area that is related, but not something they have direct experience in. So their ability to sort of tackle that and show just structuring the problem, thinking through these edge cases, being a little data-driven. These are the type of things that I look for in a typical case study. Now, 
On the capacity to learn, that's probably a might be more behavioral type question. So, you know, looking at patterns about how they've taken on different challenges or tried to reinvent themselves or expand their skills. I do think that, and this might be a little bit of a bias, but I do find that people who tend to be in the same role or the same functional area or the same company or the same domain area, it can get a little bit too comfortable for them. And if they're not always putting themselves in a position where they're uncomfortable and they're having to learn and they're having to sort of adjust, these are the type of patterns I like to see in their experiences. And that comes up in some of the interview discussions. Who's inspired you as a leader over the course of your career thus far? I have to start with my parents. So just as a little background, Jay, I don't know if I ever discussed it with you, but my family came over with the fall of Saigon in 1974. And so I was just three years old at the time. And my father was a colonel in the Vietnamese army and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. She didn't speak a word of English. And we were literally put in a situation where we came here with nothing. And I had older sisters and a younger brother. And the fact that my parents had a very sort of supportive, almost like servant leadership approach to how they raised my brothers and sisters, I think I learned quite a bit from them because it was all about sacrifice. It's all about setting their children up for success because in their minds, it's like they had a phase one of their life, which was was in Vietnam. And then phase two was all about setting their children for success in their U.S. So I think I'd have to start with them because they've inspired me quite a bit in terms of what they've done. Other people have inspired me is certainly my wife. So I just recently uh, celebrated my 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. And she has a very similar approach and story in terms of what she's done with our children. So she's been a stay-at-home mom for about 23 years. So she started her career as a software developer. Okay. And after we had our, our first uh, child, she uh, stayed at home and she's been there. But she's very focused on the community. She's very focused on raising our children. She's very focused on personal impact, taking ownership and responsibility. And again, just setting our children up for success. So I think she's inspired me quite a bit in terms of empathy, you know, what you can control and have impact on other people, and then contributing to the community at large. So I think she's another one. And then maybe as a, just a general uh, leader that I've attached to quite a bit, Kevinich Parani, who is actually the VP in Google Cloud for Ecosystem. So he's my VP. This is my second stint working for him. So I worked with him at SAP. And so- leads Google Cloud ecosystem organization. So think of all of our partnerships. And the reason why I think he's been a big inspiration is because he is 100% high motor. He is constantly high energy. The fact that he has such credibility and trust with not only our, our ecosystem partners, but also sales leaders and senior leaders. And he's always trying to sort of bridge the collaboration across organizations. Because with ecosystem, a lot of times you're kind of sitting in the middle of sales because you want to drive business results and deals. Right. But you also have to deal with product because a lot of what we do is integrations with our product teams, but also, you know, in cases like first party versus third party, how do you position yourself in the market and you have good alignment with the product teams and making sure that you work together. So the fact that he is just a strong people person, collaborator, and he's so high energy with internal and external stakeholders has been very inspirational for me. And that's you know why I've worked for him a second time now. Yeah. And, and obviously when you go to work for somebody 
if you're a repeat customer, so to speak, exactly. there's a lot about them and the working relationship that you have. You mentioned his his high motor a, a minute ago. I mean, you're in this hyper growth business, and I'm yes. sure it comes with a heavy dose of demand. Would you describe yourself as having a high level of self-discipline to be able to keep up with that pace? To be quite candid, I think I'm okay at this, sort of figuring out self-discipline and keeping up. And because I think the demands of the job does make it very challenging. And I've probably been better in the past about making sure that I do the right things to have the right level of balance, if you will, yeah. and making sure that I'm always functioning at the high level. In the past, the things that I try to aspire to do is I take frequent breaks during the day as much as possible. So you, to the extent that you can grab or steal 10 minutes between meetings where yeah. making sure you can energize and sort of refocus. Otherwise, you find yourself at the end of the day where you're literally back-to-back -back meetings with 10 meetings emotionally and mentally exhausted. So I think taking frequent breaks is one. Another thing I do is I do make time. I carve out to really focus on decisions. So it's carving out time on the calendar where you're really looking at things that, hey, I need to sort of make this critical decision where you need to have sort of very focused decision making. You can sort of crowd out some of the noise and escalations that frequently hit you throughout the day. So carving out time to make those critical decisions, again, could be for the business, could be for the team, whatever it may be. And then the other piece I would do is I am getting a little bit better on making sure that I manage the load. Really what it comes down to is, and in any given day, I might have like a hundred things I have to go work on. And right. I would say 20 of them are like P0 or P negative one in priority. Like it has to be done. And then really from a capacity standpoint, I probably can only do five things, right? Out of right. 20. So it is really being very disciplined around, hey, what do I need to do today that's absolutely critical? Because I'm always constantly making those trade-offs with the demands and setting expectations with the different stakeholders. So I think those are some of the things that I try to do given the the fast-paced environment and, uh, and, the, and the workload. It's a constant triage, right? You know, you can't, and I think was it Warren Buffett that talks about like, write down the 25 things that are most important to you, cross off number six through 25, go focus on the first five and then, yeah. and then make a list again, you know, yeah, uh, you, exactly. you just, you can't, you know, you talk about a hundred. I mean, I, you definitely can't be doing a hundred things. And so you, you, you yeah. do have to kind of zero in on what are the most important things to be working on this day, this week, this month, and, and making sure that you commit the appropriate time to them and other things just, you yeah. know, you got to rely on other people or just, you know, rely on doing a less perfect job of them. Absolutely. And I think with experience, you, you come a little bit better in terms of judgment, you know, being able to make that trade-off decision every single day, not having complete information, yeah. but uh, you start to get pretty good at it. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And I think we both had the benefit of a management consulting background where, you know, you're operating on a limited time, you know, you have to make inference-based decisions and you come up with the best answer you can in the, in the, Time that's been afforded, and it teaches you to operate in complete information to form opinions based on that. And that's a skill set certainly that's benefited me a lot over the course of my career. Just the ability to be comfortable with not having a perfect set of facts to make a decision and getting on with life anyway. Totally agree. Do you have a morning routine or anything like that? I do. So I wake up very early typically around 5 a.m. What I do do is because, you know, I'm most alert at that time, I have a lot of energy. I do a couple of things. One is I do try to minimize the 
research to uh, deal with these, what I call like incoming torpedoes and checking email. Yeah. What I do is I do try to figure out there's typically something like one of these hundred things that I told you I had to deal with every day. That's sort of like a nagging thing that does require very focused thought. I usually try to hit off one or two of those in the morning. You know, that could be a document or a communication response via email or review some doc. So there are a couple of things that I do just to make sure I hit out. The other thing is I do try to plan out the day a little bit. Then this goes back to this trade-off decision because everyone's online, 830, it's a free-for-all. So you able to do that early in a very quiet time and figure out like, hey, here are the critical things I need to complete today is very important. And then maybe the last thing I do every day is, and this is something I picked up 10 years ago, and I just recently picked it up again after the pandemic, is I ride my bike to work every day. Dude. So it's about a, a little bit more than six mile bike ride. And you know I go at a brisk pace. So I get there, I get to work in about 18, 19 minutes. So I, that whole routine and that consistency, I think helps prepare me for the day. Yeah. And I try to stick to it. I've been pretty good about it. For the most part, that is my primary form of exercise yeah. in a very practical way. Like I don't spend going to a gym, working out and coming back. I, I find that very difficult to sort of manage from my schedule, but yeah, 18 minutes there, 18 minutes back, boom, it's yeah. my exercise for the day. What advice would you give a rising leader on it? How to balance it all? A couple of things. Number one is... As I mentioned earlier, you have to know your limitations and be comfortable around what you can and cannot do and what you do or do not know and reach out for help. I think early in my career, there was a tendency that if you reach out for help or you ask for assistance or you ask questions to clarify, it was some showing some form of weakness. But in reality, being comfortable in understanding where you need help and where you can sort of loop in and for clarification, I think goes a long way. So I think that's number one. Number two is, as I mentioned, do whatever it takes in terms of creating that sort of like quiet time or re being able to recharge your batteries. And if you're like into exercising, if you're into taking walks, if you're into spending time with your children, I think getting into that habit and forcing yourself to be able to have that downtime is also critical because I think if you get in this mode of constantly running, running fast, I think at some point you're going to be mentally exhausted and you won't be operating at your top. And then maybe the last thing I would say is constantly ask yourself why you're doing it and are you learning and you're enjoying your job. So almost take a little bit of a retrospective in a while to make sure that you know, what gets you up? What gets you excited? Are you doing things that make a difference? You know, what's important to you? Because if it's not, then it's time to maybe reassess. If you don't do that, what you could find yourself is you're doing the same thing. You could be miserable and literally it's four years later. So uh, just taking time and having that retrospective of like what motivates you? Are you happy? Are you learning? Are you being challenged? I think is is also something I would encourage folks to do. What have you focused on developing in terms of your skill set and your style over the course of your career thus far? I think number one is communications is an area that I continue to to focus on. I think as you get broader responsibilities, the forms in which you communicate, whether it's you know a presentation or talking at an all hands or communicating to stakeholders, I think the stakes are a little bit higher in terms of what you say, how you say it, 
and your body language. So just really focusing on communication. And as I mentioned before, sometimes you have to drive that communication message through multiple channels and figure out the best way to do that. So I think that's one area. The other area that is around being a little bit more intentional and decisive in terms of uh, decision-making. I think, as I mentioned before, I tend to be a little bit more of a collaborative leader, maybe a democratic style where I want to get inputs from folks and make folks feel that they're part of the decision-making process and they're providing input. And I think that works out well in many cases, but then sometimes there are situations that require faster decision-making Uh, the value that you get for deliberating may not be as high as the time that you're using. Uh, And sometimes the team just wants more decisive guidance on things. So I think just finding those situations where uh, fast decision-making is is important. And then maybe the last thing that I would want to continue to work on is just improving my ability to motivate others. And again, focus on how do you inspire? How do you get them to be, stretch themselves? How do they feel that they have a sense of, hey, I'm focused on their development. They can stretch themselves and recognizing their accomplishments. So this sort of feeds itself. And I think that's another area that I think I've made significant progress on, but an area that I continue to want to work on. Is there anything that you think back and wish somebody had told you earlier in your career journey that you know now or any last lessons you'd want our audience to take away from the discussion? Yeah. So I think a couple of things. One is the importance yeah. of a network. I probably maybe mid-career, I started to focus on that a little bit, but it's so incredibly important because if I look at some of the opportunities like SAP, Google, they were ex-colleagues that introduced me to these opportunities. I think it's just human nature that people want to work with people they know are strong and having advocates. And it may not always be sort of a career or job opportunity, but having that professional network that you can lean on either for advice in tough times or opening doors for you becomes incredibly important. And that was something that I wish I had had focused on a little bit earlier in my career, but nonetheless, I benefited from that. The other piece I would say is, you know, I think you and I have seen this with with our consulting experience where I think a lot of folks graduate from college and have a very like multi-year plan around how they want their career to develop. Like, hey, I'm going to be a consultant and I'm going to, or a business analyst and I'm going to work here for two years and I'm going to go to business school and then I got to start applying this date and then I'm going to work in this particular industry. People plan out things so much. In my career, I think I've been a little bit more opportunistic uh, in terms of the opportunity. And I think the way I've done it is more around learning and expanding my scope, responsibilities, domain areas. I mean, I've had some consistent things, right? I mean, I've worked primarily in tech and more specifically enterprise tech, but I've had different roles. I've been a management consultant. I've been a product manager. I've been in uh, business development. I've been in sort of more marketing type roles too. So I think the fact that I've been able to sort of embrace and learn and adapt and take on different challenges has helped me in my career. You know, I'm at a point now where I think I'm in more of a traditional general management type role Mm. where I'm primarily responsible for driving business results. And in some ways, I kind of feel like it's made sense throughout my career. Like I've had these old diversified experiences and I've got to a point where I feel that I have broad scope and responsibility, but it wasn't because I planned it all out, right? It was literally because I focused on learning and adapting and acquiring new skills. And that has helped me. So there are different ways to get to where you want to go, but you don't have to have it all planned out because frankly, never 
nothing ever goes as planned. Of course. A little bit like you're, you talked about with your day earlier. It's like once once everybody's online, like it's a free-for-all. So thanks for doing this, Di. I appreciate it. Good to catch up with you and hear a bit about what you're doing at Google. So I, I appreciate you making the time for this. Thank you, JR. It was a lot of fun and look forward to staying connected. I want to thank Di for joining me today to discuss his work on Google Cloud, his thoughts on leadership, his broader career journey, and what he's learned along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, you can visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.